actually, as we begin this morning to think about um, the community of the Church of Jesus Christ in history and in time, and in this moment right now as we're here, but also as we go back to the very beginning of the story, as uh, we've been exploring through the book of Acts, that idea of stretching out your arms and linking with people nearby, that's what had happened in the lives of those earliest Christians. They'd heard about Jesus, they had encountered Jesus, they'd had a collision with Jesus. And Jesus' very presence had taken up a, a, a presence in their lives. Even for those who'd never seen him in the flesh, even for those who'd never heard him teach the, the sound of his voice, never been close enough to see him touch and heal somebody else, even for those who had not witnessed from a distance his hanging on the cross, even they were brought close and they were getting to know Jesus because of the power of his spirit in their lives. And what that spirit did was it linked them with each other. It joined them together. Suddenly they were part of a community, of a, of a family, and there was something whole, and there was something warm, and that was a community of love and sharing and caring for each other. And that was something really powerful. The story of Jesus, the news about Jesus, and this brand new community amongst them. I don't know if I entirely agree with him, but Clarence Jordan um, a farmer and a New Testament scholar and uh, a leader in trying to bring uh, divided people together in the United States and the South back in the 1940s and 50s and 60s when he started something of an interracial farm in America's Georgia. He, he once said that when the apostles wanted to point to the ultimate evidence for the resurrection of Jesus... They didn't point to an empty tomb, but they pointed to a spirit-filled fellowship. I don't think it's an either-or. But here's the truth. Eventually, there's not a physical empty tomb to point to as the years go by. And so maybe Clarence had a point that there was something about the quality of this life that people couldn't escape. It was right in front of them, <laughs> except all of a sudden, it wasn't. All of a sudden, it wasn't. Uh, we're going to read God's Word together from Acts chapter 6 and 7 this morning. Just some words from the beginning, and again, a little bit later, we're going to look at the end of chapter 7. But I'm going to invite you to stand right now, and uh, I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Acts chapter 6. I invite you to listen. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, and that's what had happened. Day after day, week after week, month after month, we don't know quite how far into the story this is. But the, 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 it was growing, everything was growing. As the disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles and who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
And so the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, if you didn't know it before you came here, you knew it this morning, that today is the, today's New Year day, uh, so to speak. It's the first day in the Christian year. It's the first day of the first week of Advent, the first Sunday in Advent. And that's the season that leads up to Christmas, but it's not just about decorating for Christmas. It's not just that. It is a season unto its own right where we anticipate and we look forward to the coming of Jesus, celebrating that first coming, anticipating that second coming, longing for his coming in our lives today by his spirit in very powerful and distinct and important ways. Uh, the Christian year ends last Sunday um, in, a, in a Sunday that almost anticipates Advent, really. Last Sunday was called Christ the King Sunday. And what we really anticipate when we long for and look for Jesus' return is the day when Jesus Christ will be completely, entirely, through and through, King of the universe, but King of earth, and King of the church, and King of you and me. We're not quite there yet. We still pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your kingdom come. And for the kingdom to come, the King has to come. Uh, a prayer that I use in my devotions this past week comes from last Sunday in more liturgical churches that have given prayers. It reads like this, Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things through your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Listen to the request of that prayer one more time. Mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule. That's under Jesus' rule and direction. You know, this world has more than its shared visions, right? And have you noticed in the country you live in recently, in the last week or last month or last year, or for that matter, the last decade, or for that matter, in some ways, for more and more years stretching on, that we live in a culture and a society and a country more divided, it seems almost, than in any time in our lifetimes. I don't know if that's true or not. None of us can be objective. We don't get to float above it all and watch from, from some infallible perspective. All we know is where we live. And we're aware in the middle of all this of the division and how things are broken apart. And if it's not that on the pan scale, on the larger scale, it's, uh, and we can see it, uh, the leaders of nations meeting these days and we're aware of the tension the trade tensions between the United States and China. We're aware of, of how difficult life is on this planet, together with other people. But it doesn't take that. 
I know stories of, of, of teams that fall apart, of families that splinter, of marriages that crumble. It's so simple, it seems, for everything to come apart. And we may care and look for certain leaders and um, answers, but we don't pray for a technology, or we don't even pray, I don't think we do, for any candidate, for, for president or anything else. Dear Lord, bring all the peoples of earth together under the most gracious rule of my man or my woman. We're not that stupid, are we? Okay. But we do pray this prayer, that under Jesus, Lord, you would bring everything together, because Jesus is the one who actually can break down the things that separate people change them inside and out and make it possible for them to be fitted so that they are okay to be with God and also okay to be with others. Even across uh, things, social, racial, economic, ethnic, uh, sometimes just very personal divisions. That's why the early church was such a breath of fresh air for so many people in Jerusalem. It was alive, something new was happening, this Jesus they couldn't seem to get rid of, had changed lives. But then all of a sudden, all was not well in the Jerusalem church, and there were complaints. Look at the, look at the beginning of Acts 6 again. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Again, we don't have that objective stance. We don't know exactly what was going on. We don't know the details. Were they really being treated unfairly? I don't know for sure, but I'll tell you this. They thought they were. And if they thought they were, maybe they were. But perceptions of reality, one way or the other, it makes sense. It really makes sense that on the ground it is so easy for that sense of unity and that sense of togetherness to splinter. And things were suddenly not all so great in the church. And this was a dangerous moment as the church was growing, as the word was getting out, as people were responding, and more and more were gathering in to become together, to be a part of this community. Now there were problems. And the thing that was splintering them were, were common things that we can understand today. There, there were in Jerusalem, and it, the church was, was a Jewish um, community. They were Jews who followed Jesus. All of them. Um, but Jews were just not one happy family either. There were Sadducees and Pharisees and Essenes and Zealots. They, they, they had different ways. They had different political parties. They had different ideas. But then even more on the ground, for those so not invested in the structures or the parties of the time, there was just this reality that there were those who had grown up around Jerusalem and in the land. And they were Hebraic Jews. They, their, their mother tongue was was Hebrew, Aramaic, maybe for, for most of them. The truth is, most of them knew Greek at some level, because Greek was like English today, to such a great extent. It was the international language. And there was a lot of commerce, and there was a lot of movement back and forth, so lots of people at some level knew Greek. Probably Jesus and his disciples knew Greek at some level. Even if, but they, they spoke their mother tongue, their natural tongue of communication and culture and family. What they did when they went home at night was they spoke what an Hebraic Jew would speak. 
and everything was colored there. And, and, and that's where the best communication happened. That's where people could express themselves most powerfully and most distinctly. But there were in Jerusalem as well many Jews who'd moved there or come there, particularly some older people had come there to end their lives near Jerusalem, even though they'd lived in, in places very spread out around the Mediterranean. And so they'd grown up, and in their world, they were Jews. They cared about following the God of Israel. They cared about remaining faithful to that. But their culture and their mother tongue wasn't Hebrew, and it wasn't Aramaic. It was Greek. And so when they came to town, they naturally congregated together. And they just, at night, they would spend more time with each other, communicate better. And meeting Jesus didn't automatically change that, okay? Um, When I met Jesus, I did not suddenly get a second language to speak. I didn't immediately understand somebody else's culture or or somebody else's ways. I still had the, 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 the easiest interaction with people who were just like me. And so I naturally spent more time with Christians who were very similar to me than with Christians who were not quite so similar. It's not a sin, but it's a situation that on the ground can get difficult, especially when economic times were not so awesome in Jerusalem. And there were a lot of people who were running out of funds, particularly some of those older folks, especially those widows, who'd come from different places around the Mediterranean and moved to Jerusalem. They didn't have the network of support and the network of friends and the network of family. And their mother tongue wasn't the tongue of the, 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 the loving tongue of the home and the heart to so many other people who were in the majority population in Jerusalem. And one way or the other, even in the church that, that shared and, and people sold things and, and gave the proceeds to the apostles and said, here, take care of the poor amongst us. As time went along, it seemed like the widows in the Hebraic Jewish Christian community were getting better cared for than the Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews in that community. That was a problem. Things were splitting. There was tension. And you know what goes wrong when there's tension? Instead of the church glorifying God and being focused on God, instead of the church being focused on the mission to get out there and share something important with people who need to hear it, instead of the church paying attention to the needs of the world around it, suddenly everybody was looking inside. It wasn't simply navel-gazing. It was that people were looking inside and resenting and getting angry and being bothered. And have you ever been bothered by something in your family? Ever have an issue in the family? Ever not talk about it, but it doesn't go away, it's just there, it simmers? Any of you ever had an uncomfortable Thanksgiving or Christmas time with a larger section? It's so normal, right? But it's real, and it makes it difficult, and it happens in the church, too. It happens in this church. Well, We could launch into a public discussion right now. We do popcorn ideas. What are the things that we get bothered by? Or what are the things we, we get impatient with other people for? Or are you a part of a group that feels neglected somehow, one way or the other? Early on, 100 years ago, there was tension between the mother tongue and the English language. And the power was with the older generation that spoke the language from the old country. <laughs> There's always something. How do you deal with it? 
Because when you get focused inside and you're bickering and you're murmuring, that's the, the word that Luke uses here, murmur. Murmur isn't such a good word in the Bible. When God's people headed out of Egypt and were on their way to the promised land and, and things weren't right with food distribution somehow or other, they started murmuring against Moses and his people. Sometimes murmuring is justified somewhat, but murmuring still isn't good for people. It's just not good for us. And it divides us. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, let's look again. I'm going to read these first few lines. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. So the 12, who the 12? Those original core disciples of Jesus plus Matthias gathered together. They gathered all the disciples together, all the followers of Jesus, and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. What happens again and again when there are problems is that God goes looking And God finds people who will be leaders and servants in any given situation. In fact, here's one of the great things. One of the ways that God leashes and helps us grow in our own abilities, in our own sense of our own calling in life, is through problems and challenges in whatever social setting we're in. When things go wrong, things can really go wrong. But when things go wrong, there's an opportunity to pay attention and to respond, and to grow. And that's what, the, what happened in the early church. So what did God do? God did, and God continues to choose servants and leaders for his people. He started here. He chose servants, and he still does. He chooses servant leaders like the apostles. The apostles were men who'd been with Jesus. They'd been there the whole time, from the very beginning, way back in Galilee, Around the time of John the Baptist, all the way up to Jerusalem, walking in, and and Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, they'd been there and they'd witnessed that. They'd spent the time, they'd heard the Sermon on the Mount. They'd smelled the fishy smell by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus first started inviting fishermen to be his disciples. They were near when he started gathering, in fact, they were these people, this ragtag group of people, tax collectors and revolutionaries and fishermen and this and that and put them all together in this little group. Can you imagine the tension early on that existed right there? They were there to witness the miracles. They were there to hear the stories of the Good Samaritan. And the father who cared about the son who wandered away. They were there in Jerusalem. They were there. They ran and hid when he was arrested. And some of them denied him. But they were there and they saw him in the days and weeks following his resurrection. And Jesus had commissioned them in a special way. I want you to take this news. I want you to tell my story. I want you to take this to new places. Invite others to become what you have become so far. And that is, I want you to make disciples of all kinds of people around you. And those apostles were very significant. And God had used them in a powerful way early on. An explosion of faith. An explosion of people who responded to Jesus. 
and an explosion of need. It was a really key role for them. They were a people of deep-seated passion. And they had become a people of courage. As they were in situations where someone might have wanted to take their lives, and that was starting to happen. And there were people around who wanted to make things difficult, and that was starting to happen. And some of them had spent a little time in jail, and that was starting to happen more and more. These were men of courage. When they got together one night after Peter and John had been released from their little stint in jail, they prayed together. And they didn't pray for God to make everything easy to take it all away. They just prayed, Lord, take a look at this. Be with us. You see the threats? Keep us strong and keep us faithful and keep us going on. Wow. You can't really improve on men like that, can you? But here's the thing. They had a special job to do. And, and, and they summed it up like this in, in Acts chapter 6. They talk about it as the ministry of the word. Or later, the uh, prayer and the ministry of the word. That was their role. They weren't good at everything. There were lots of needs and lots of situations. They weren't good at everything. And even if they could have done those things, they weren't capable of watching over all the details of this community. God needed more people than just them. He needed the apostles. He sent them out. It was part of his plan. But God needed, so to speak, he needed more people than just them. And so you know what those apostles did? They paid attention. Bill Gates uh, talked about what's necessary to be the leader uh, of a business. He's the leader of a business, to say the least. He says you got to listen and you got to pay special attention when things are not right, when something's wrong. you got to listen and you got to hear. When people tell you something, you listen and you find out and you act. And if people tell you and you don't pay attention, they will eventually cease to tell you. Well, the apostles listened and they heard. And they gathered a group of people together and they said, we're not called to this. We're not called to serve tables. We're not called to distribute food. We've been trying to do it, but we're not called to that. And if we focus on this problem, we will get away from what Jesus asked us to do. These guys weren't saying that what they did was more important than what anybody else did. There's a centrality to what they were doing, but lots of things have to happen in life. They were just saying, this is what God has asked us to do. We need somebody else to help out. What they did was they gave ministry and service away to others and they didn't claim it for themselves they gave it away and they invited others to step in and to step up and to take charge of certain realities in life so God doesn't just choose servants like the apostles he also chooses servants like the seven look again at this passage Brothers and sisters, they say to all these believers gathered together, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. That last one's interesting, because actually in some ways he was the first non-Jew except he was a Jew by conversion he was a convert 
which meant that when he was born and when he grew up, he was not Jewish. The first sign of something beginning to break out of that Jewish envelope of, of, of containment. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. You've seen that happen before when a missions trip goes out from here and we've gathered people in the middle and invite others to gather around and to lay their hands on them and to pray for them. That practice goes back to this kind of a moment. Were these guys pastors? Had they gone to seminary, these seven? No. No. They were just normal human beings. Okay? They had not been homogenized and seminarized or anything. God had been at work in their lives. They were growing. There was something people could observe in them. But they were what we call lay people. And they were given responsibility. What set them apart? Well, the community had observed things about them. And they saw this, that they were people who were known to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. If you're known for something, what does that mean you have? You have a reputation. You know, it's really hard to make any kind of judgment. And, and Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And, and there's such a thing as being judgmental. But at the same time, guess what? You do, that it doesn't mean we, we don't think about things. It doesn't mean we don't say, you know what, as best I can tell by this situation, I think this person is the right person for this job, and I don't think you have the qualifications for this, but for this. Those kinds of discernments and distinctions are important. A reputation is all we have to go on sometimes. Reputation comes from what people see and from what they observe and what they experience themselves and what other people have observed and seen and told. And there were a group of men, these seven men, who had a reputation. Their reputation was for being people who knew God, who knew Jesus. The Spirit of God was present in them. Not just in the sense that they become Christians in some generic sense, they, the Spirit lived in them, but that there was actually a, a, a presence of God's Spirit in such a way that people could tell something about them. There was a maturity it was developing. I mean, they were only so far along in the journey. But nonetheless, there, was, there were signs that they, like those apostles, had been walking with Jesus. They were not the same as they had once been. And they were people of wisdom. It's great to be spiritual, but if you don't know how to do something. Um, I knew a man when I was growing up. He was a member of our church. Uh, he, he translated some of the Bibles you've read in your life. He was a very bright man. But um, someone told me once, one time they stopped by his home and they saw that he had a flat tire and he had this long bar and he was trying to figure out how to lift his car up to try to change a tire. This man had multiple degrees, Harvard University degrees, all the rest, he knew, uh, last I knew, uh, at death, he knew about 27 different languages. But he had not the slightest clue what to do with a car or a flat tire on a car. Not a clue. He had a bad reputation when it came to that. All right? You know, what, what, what the apostles saw and what the people saw was we need people who are alive in God's spirit, but also have practical know-how and wisdom about how to work through situations and how to make peace in the body. And that's what they saw in these folks. 
I'm going I'm to jump on. I want to drive home to a conclusion for a moment. And that's the, the third observation. That God chooses people like you. He chooses servant leaders like the apostles. And he ser- chooses servant leaders like the seven. But he also chooses servant leaders like you. Do you remember, um, there's some phrases from the history of the Marines. One of them is the few, the proud. Right? Sound right? And, and I think um, that really comes kind of from a phrase that goes back, I believe, to the 1700s, the late 1700s, that the Marines are looking for a few good men. Remember that one? Yeah. Those were award-winning uh, marketing labels, by the way. They're, they're recognized in, in, the, in the industry. But... 30 or 40 years ago, there was some kind of Mennonite organization. I I haven't been able to find it, but I remember this. I remember reading this and seeing this in magazines. And it went something like this. The Marines are looking for a few good men, but the Mennonites are looking for a lot of good people. And I think that's what God is doing in the church today. We're not looking for a few good men or a few good women but we're looking for a lot of good people, meaning godly people, meaning spirit-filled people, meaning people who are growing and knowing who Jesus is and are seeking to follow him with their lives. That's who we're looking for because, do you know what? There are situations and occurrences in the life of our church or our world that need servants and leaders to step up and be involved and to make them different. Can you be a part of that? That's what we're called to. Um, it's really key what we're called to. Moment here, we're going to celebrate this meal together. Jesus gave his life so that our sins could be forgiven. As we sometimes say, so that when we die, we can go to heaven. That's all good. But Jesus gave his life so that on planet earth today, there could be a community that is one that cares for each other and cares for the glory of God. And the only way that works is when all of us are involved because apostles are not enough. There's too much to do. And the seven are not enough. There's too many opportunities and too many needs and too many divisions and too many emptinesses. And God has gifted every single one of us here to play a role in what he's doing in our world. I want you to think about that and invite you to reflect. What is that situation, that place, that need in worship and service and helping other people meet Jesus and grow with him and working with senior adults, many of whom can't get out, or working with high school students or young adults? There's no end. Or babies. Or babies. Pray and listen. Because God is at work. And do you know what happened when these seven men went to work? The community continued to grow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's powerful and growing. It has been for thousands of years. And may it grow in our world and our lives as Jesus Christ continues to transform us and enlist us
in making critical differences in unity and oneness and helping people grow with Jesus and be fit for heaven, but be fit to live as kingdom people here and now. Pray this in Jesus' name.